Grassroots Community Network's 2017 Aspen City Council candidate and election coverage is made possible by a grant from the Thrift Shop of Aspen, where your donations and purchases of clothing and other personal items supports dozens of nonprofits throughout the Roaring Fork Valley. Underwriting for Grassroots ProBlind series of in-depth candidate discussions is provided by A&B Bank Aspen, a bank like no other, with the strength, talent, commitment, and security to fulfill their business and personal customers' financial needs. A special thanks to Aspen Journalism for partnering with Grassroots on ProBlind, because well-informed citizens make better decisions. Discover more local, in-depth investigative journalism at aspenjournalism.org. It is simple to join these local institutions in supporting grassroots programming. Click the Donate button on your next visit to grassrootstv.org. You can watch this program and thousands of other grassroots programs online at grassrootstv.org, as well as on Cable Channel 12, Up Valley, Cable Channel 82, Down Valley, and Free TV Channel 12.1, over the Picking County Translator System. Or find a podcast of this discussion and many other informative and inspiring local presentations by clicking the iTunes or SoundCloud icons at the top of grassrootstv.org homepage. Okay, we are ready, so right. welcome. Thanks. So you're running for Aspen City Council? Yes, I am. Well, so it's your first run at elected office. Absolutely. And so what do you want to do on City Council? Yeah, I, you know, I'm running really for three primary reasons. Um, one, in my sort of experience, um, having chaired the Next Generation Advisory Commission for a couple years and now as a chair in Planning and Zoning Commission, I've watched a lot of very well-intentioned, um, often very thoughtful community leaders address problems that we all know that we have, but I watch us recur and recur to the same solutions. We're often solving tomorrow's problems with yesterday's tools, and so I think I can bring a fresh and different perspective from a different life experience to address those. Secondly, and forgive to your, uh, to your viewers, because this gets a little wonky, but I really think that it is the challenge of our time to modernize the way our government actually functions. I think democracy is being challenged all across the globe. We all remember November, um, and I think we have an opportunity here to uh, really innovate in that sector and make the needs of our institutions match the desires of our people so we're actually responding to the full community and not just to a vocal minority. And then the third is that I really want to leave a more livable Aspen. Um, you know, I think those who have come before me left the most amazing town in the world. I just, I am so appreciative each day. Um, but there's more to do, and I think that we, I think our better days are ahead of us if we work at it. So how long have you been on PNZ? I have been on PNZ for about two and a half years now. And now you're chair? That's correct. Does that change things much if you're chair? Um, yeah, you know, it's funny. <laughs> I, 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 I didn't intend to get on PNZ. I had been really focusing on next gen, and uh, the mayor approached me and said, hey, there's an open seat, you should do this. And then I think it was the city clerk who said, hey, you should do this, and on and on. So I, I did, and I, uh, I ended up being appointed to the seat, and I was a couple months in, I, I had uh, just gotten back from an off-season trip, and someone said, hey, you're vice chair. And I said, oh, okay. Uh, so I, I played that role for some time, uh, and then when the elections came around this go, to my surprise, I was nominated by two of my commissioners. Um, and so now I sit in that role. But I am trying to actually use that opportunity to change in what I think is a substantive way how the commission functions. Uh, it, it has been my experience, and, and for those viewers who, who don't understand, I think a lot of people think that planning and zoning is a, a policy-creating body, that it's subjective, which just isn't the case. We have projects that come in. We've got a set list of criteria. This is why you can or cannot approve a project, and our job is just to enforce those. There are some with a little bit of wiggle room that's intentionally in there, but for most cases, it's not. And I had found over and over that more often than not, we were saying things like, boy, this is a great project for town, but we can't approve it. Or the converse, right? This is actually a really poor outcome for our community, but we have to approve it. And so what would happen is uh, applicants would leave angry, distrustful. They would come back the next time asking for more, asking for different things. Uh, and we as commissioners were upset. So as chair, what I've really tried to do is 
bring a conversation as opposed to just a yes no vote within our commissioner pool i've tried to really communicate clearly to the applicant not just the result but the how and the why we got there and when we end up in those circumstances what do we think would be a better direction and why and i have begun to slowly watch applicants even when decisions were not ones that they like come up at the end and say you know what thank you, I appreciate this. And when they came back next time, we find more alignment. And city council has taken a lot of what we've said at that table and in an amazing year-long process to realign um, our codes and guidelines with AACP have uh, taken a lot of that into account. And so um, though it might seem kind of low tech, it's actually having a really big impact. And as chair, I'm really working to continue in that. So all the code changes go through PNZ first, right, for review before um, they go to council? Do you guys get a look at them? We, we do get to look at stuff. Mm -hmm. um, generally, <laughs> they can often be 500-page documents, right. um, and there's, there's limited time. So we do look at them all. We'll earmark things that we think, yes, no, need discussion. Um, not every single thing is discussed. It's just a, a, by virtue of, of time. But, yeah, we did get to play an active role in that process. I mean, the planners want your feedback. They bring stuff to you. Absolutely. You are the planning commission. Yeah, that's right. correct. So they do do that. That's right. And then have you found that you've learned a lot on that commission about yeah. the mechanics of, of approving stuff? I mean, if you're on city Absolutely. council, your real job in many ways is to say yes or no to stuff. So. Yeah. I, I've learned a ton from mm -hmm. a, a technical aspect, mm -hmm. um, but I've really learned a lot interpersonally. I've had an opportunity to get to know all of our staff and our planners, to get to know applicants, to understand the dynamic that happens in the room between the public, uh, the cameras, or the record as well, which is really important because- You're off camera though on PNC, right? Uh, yeah, that's right, but mm -hmm. for city council, you're right. asking. Mm -hmm. um, but we have, we mm -hmm. have minutes, we have a public record, and right. that's really important because you know, not everybody has two hours to come to a meeting in the middle of a work day. I mean, you know, I'm a 30-year-old guy who has a full-time job and I'm on a commission. Like, I empathize with that. And very often we make decisions based on just those who show up. And those who show up, like, that's amazing. We should activate. But we really need to find ways to represent the whole community. And so I've tried to use that process to make sure that we are at least clearly trans, uh, transmuting our thoughts to everyone broadly so there's a record to go back to. So there's a pretty long legacy of people working on PNZ and getting frustrated that council doesn't listen to their recommendations and then running for council so that they can actually vote on, on projects that they review instead of just yeah. making recommendations. Is that a factor in your running? Are you a um, frustrated no, PNZ member? Look, uh, are there decisions that I think I would have personally preferred something else? Of course. Because the running? council can, can overturn anything. You guys can say yeah. yes, and they can that's say no, and vice versa. That's right. right. Okay. That's correct. Mm -hmm. um, but no, I, I'm not running out of frustration. I'm running out of excitement for what's possible. Um, I think we can do amazing things in this town. Like We have everything in our toolbox to make the town that we want, just as those who came before us did. Um, do we get things perfect every time? No. And that's okay to admit that. In fact, it needs to be admitted. But we can do better. So I'm, I'm running to see... What's next? Well, let's talk about your uh, your relationship with Aspen. Um, I know you went to CU, mm -hmm. and you're originally from Chicago. Mm -hmm. And so was it CU that introduced you to Aspen? Did you mm -hmm. come up while you were on the ski team there? Or no. Um, uh, I, my grandparents, um, they bought, I might get the year wrong. I'm relying on my mom here. But okay. uh, they bought the first Tamarack in Snowmass in 1969. Wow. So my mom okay. grew up skiing as a kid there so did my uncle uh, i was on skis at snowmass at 15 months okay. and i was you know out here a week or two weeks a year growing up and it was the best part of my year you know i'd wake up at 6 a.m wake up my parents and ski bell to bell um, and then coming out of high school um, i was an athlete in high school but not a skier because i was in chicago um, i had some really difficult family situation um, uh, I, I grew up in the home with my mom and my grandparents. Okay. Uh, my parents had a divorce that took almost a decade, and so uh, my grandfather was really like a father figure to me, the person that I most revered and looked up to. And he had Parkinson's for a long time. Um, I spent a lot of time taking care of him and the family, and he passed away at the end of my junior year. I spent, I don't know, three months uh, by his bedside in the hospital. I just didn't go to school. I my ACTs. I walked in. I hadn't been in school in months and drank a bunch of caffeine, set it down, and walked in. Um, the only time I left that hospital bed were 
two days where I just couldn't take it anymore. And I drove up to Wisconsin to a whatever 400 vertical foot hill and skied. And it just really became clear to me that that was my reprieve and the thing that like I really kind of yearned for and I wanted the time to decompress. Um, but I didn't want to take a gap year because I was concerned that I wouldn't go back to school. I'd like it too much. So I ended up graduating early from high school, four days after I turned 18. And the next morning at 4 a.m. I was, I was driving to Aspen. Uh, and so I did a full season. Uh, lived in club commons, dorms. Uh, totally fell in love with it. Were you a ski instructor? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. For the ski company? Yep. Obviously. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. uh, it, was, it was great. I got really lucky. I got to do um, you know, the extreme camps and the uh, youth clinics and park and pipe lessons and all the fun stuff. It's really amazing. Uh, and then, like you mentioned, I went to CU. I was a competitive skier, so I would live in Aspen in the winters, go to school in the summers. Um, and then following college, I left and went to work uh, in Chicago, in D.C., um, overseas for a little bit. And uh, ultimately, when I decided to launch my own, my own endeavors, my own company, um, I wasn't place-specific, and I got my head screwed on right. I said, oh, I can live anywhere. I moved back to Aspen. That was, uh, I don't know, almost seven years ago now, and you have to drag me away. And what's your current uh, profession, if you will, or, or yeah, full-time right job now. you mentioned? Yep. Uh -huh. um, so I'm, right now I'm the creative director and president of Aspen Entrepreneurs. Um, we are a nonprofit in the Valley. We've been around for about three years. Um, and we provide resources, capital, access to mentorship for not just entrepreneurs, but small business owners, solopreneurs throughout the Roaring Fork Valley. Um, we are really focusing on how can Aspen do what it's been best at, innovate out of necessity and service retail, uh, outdoor, and, and tourism. And we've been seeing some really amazing things come from, uh, from our members. It's cool. amazing. And you live in Aspen. You live in town, obviously. I mean, you must live in the city. Uh, but you're not in yeah. deed-restricted housing. Are you a renter? Are you an owner? What's, I, what's your I, situation? I wish I was an owner. <laughs> um, no, you know, I have this, um, I've got this sort of <laughs> hobbit hole of a six-foot-tall ceiling, uh -huh. bottom half of a uh, little miner's cabin uh -huh. uh, that is on the east end of town, and mm -hmm. it is it's amazing. I, I love it. It's the longest I've lived anywhere uh, since, I, since I grew up. So it's, it's a secure it's rental situation, relatively. Yeah, right. it's, I'm, I'm, I've been really lucky. I actually, uh -huh. my, uh, the, the owners are upstairs, so their, their oh, parents uh -huh. bought this place like during the quiet years for mm -hmm. like twenty thirty thousand dollars and they ultimately gave it to their two children. Mm -hmm. One is from Denver, the other lives in New York, but they're now in their late sixties, early seventies, so they've just kind of retired and you know they're there i don't know a month or two out of the year um, but uh, they uh, you know I come from a, a Jewish family, and we found this place, and it was uh, just i mean there was a line of people as you would expect mm. um, but I think I, I won them over by rental. negotiating mm. part of the lease in Hebrew and uh, <laughs> and so we've just become really close and um, they've been nice enough not to raise the rent on me too much nice. so, yeah. so uh, you started the next gen advisory commission and yeah. I have to say I'm 57 and so feel 57 but I look it um, and and when you when, when people say uh, you know it's time for the next gen to, to step up I can't help but sort of feel like, well, they want to shuffle us old-timers off the, off the stage. Yeah. And so do you get that kind of pushback? Is it just me or do others say, well, what's so special about being young and, and why are you guys pushing this? It has been my single biggest frustration with NextGen. NextGen wasn't something that we set out to do. Um, it was something that was set forth and requested by the community and by the city. And... That they yeah. wanted a youth advisory That's committee. Right. Uh -huh. Because historically, young people haven't been involved. I mean, some of the years that we most revere were years where young people were involved in the 60s and the 70s, and that hasn't happened. I mean, the last time a candidate ran for office who was even within five years of my age, it was Tory 16 years ago. Hmm. So, so that's mm -hmm. changed, and there was an understanding that representative democracy to function needs to be representative. If you approach a problem with five of the same perspectives, you're going to get one answer. That might be a good answer. It also might not. But the whole point of democracy is to have differing viewpoints. We need more young people. We need more women. We need more Hispanics. Right? We need to have a representative body. And so while NextGen was created because the low-hanging fruit, the people who weren't there, were young people, you know, I have always personally, our commission has always, always tried to reach out to the whole community. I wake up every day in 
the best place in the world because your generation helped do this. Like this wasn't an accident. This doesn't just happen. So I have the most reverence for you guys for what you do. I have no intent of pushing anybody out. This should be a yes and equation. And it has definitely been a frustration for me that that has not been felt or perceived by a lot of people because I do hear what you say. I mean, I'm not sure my generation necessarily did. I guess we've done, I'm sure there are people who've done a lot for us in my generation, but I feel more like it was here and it was set and, and I just came in and skimmed the cream. But um, the other yeah. question I have for you, you're 30. Yeah. And so when I was 30, I was beginning to feel that I was no longer young. Um, and so how do you define next gen at this point? Um, is it, because I think some people may feel, well, you should be in your early 20s to be considered young. Are sure. you aging out of your own uh, youth advisory? So I think there's a, there's a personal answer and there's a specific answer. Okay. The specific answer is next gen by its sort of charter, by its bylaws, is mm -hmm. 18 to 40. Okay. So in that case, I'm smack dab in the middle. Okay. Um, the personal answer for me is, you know, you, you say I, but we created NextGen. There was 11 founding members, okay. and all of them were super instrumental. My co-chair, Christine Benedetti, has been amazing throughout. I mean, people like Duncan Klaus and Kimbo brown Girado and, gosh, Jill uh, Edinger, formerly Jill Tian. I mean, without these guys, there would have been no NextGen. So it's not me, it's, it's us. Um, that said, um, you know, the, the group asked for me to be chair when we started. And uh, at the time, I said, sure, because I thought that I had the energy and the vision to drive us forward and give us permanence. But that was the goal. The goal was permanence. And that can't exist in one person. It has to live on. So I said from the very beginning, I will do this, but I will only do it for two years. And after that, it needs to cycle. The institution needs to last. And so um, I am very glad that you know Christine was elected chair. So I no longer have that responsibility. She's doing a great job. Michael Reese is now our co-chair. I think he's 23, which is amazing. That counts, right? Uh, so that's really <laughs> great. And, you know, I'm still on the commission. But, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I hope that I can continue to drive forward this next generation of leadership at the city council table um, and that that will be around to bite at my ankles in 50 years. Well, we should talk a bit more about next gen because part of your platform is a youth platform, right? In a way, it's elect me because I am not 57, I'm 30, right? I would suggest that part of the platform is you should consider voting for me or ideally vote for me. <laughs> Please <laughs> Still have trouble me. saying yeah. that. Go ahead. Please vote I gotta for get me. better yeah. at that. Yeah. But, but I do have a different life experience, right? We come from different backgrounds. We come from different historical contexts. We come from a different technological basis. Uh, the things that I was doing when I was 20 are different than what you were doing when you were 20. And so it's not about the number, but it's about the experience and how that influences how we address problems. And so I guess the tough question then about next gen is has it really done anything? Has it made a difference? If yeah. you're running on a youth-based platform, what can you point to that NextGen has actually done and made a difference? Sure. In, in this I think the, the biggest substantive program that we've put in place is um, we, we do an annual uh, uh, survey of our demographic. And what we always hear is that housing is the biggest concern. Mm -hmm. Second two are business opportunity or sustainable career opportunity. And then third, third if you group these, is generally childcare. Uh, we've been working on the first one. We've made some progress there. The second one, though, we were able to start a mentorship program. We said, okay, well, what are the, the inherent difficulties that are worsening? Well, rents are going up, et cetera. But what are the things that are actually getting better? Well, we've got the most amazing pool of mentors, people who have done it, ex-CEOs, et cetera, for any 6,000-person town in the world. So how do we use that resource to help catalyze the next generation, transferable knowledge, the same reason why you go to college? Uh, and so for, I think we, it was about $42,000 annual budget, which we raised throughout the community. We were able to launch that program. A year later, we had had 26 small businesses through the program, um, several individuals looking to career path to go from sort of the bar to the boardroom. Um, we had brought in 31 like top-level professional mentors and secured 1,500 hours of mentorship. And then, by the way, we don't administer or run this program. Um, it was we were the it's a separate sort of nonprofit now incubator right? for it. That's right, and mm -hmm. it's now standing on its own feet as a mm -hmm. nonprofit. Um, that's a huge win. That's a very efficient use of funds. Um, and that's something that has a multiplier effect that will continue to reinvest in our community. So that's been uh, a, a really big win. The other big one that I would point to, which is uh, probably less shiny, but uh, to me is the single biggest win for NextGen, is when we started that commission, everybody said, you guys are crazy. No one's going to show up. 
young people are lazy, they're apathetic, they don't care, they're busy. Well, guess what? In the three times we've had open applications for that commission, there have been more applicants for NextGen than any other commission in the city, and in two instances, more than any other commission in 10 years. So we are actually showing people through our actions that if you get involved, you can make a difference. And now people are coming out and they're getting involved. And now after the election in November, people are calling me and saying, what can I do? To me, that's the biggest win. So I was at the city council meeting by chance for another agenda item when the executive director of the mentorship program presented results. You yeah. were there with her. Um, and remind me of her name, I'm sorry. Uh, Julie Engels. Thank you. Yeah. And so then I thought the mayor kind of savaged her a little bit in, in his remarks. And I thought some of the things he said were, yeah. were pretty surprising. And I know Steve's a gentleman at heart, but he was coming across as pretty rude, I yeah. thought, to her. Um, you actually had to leave, I think, before she got. I had to go to a Planning and Zoning Commission meeting savage. across the hall. Yeah. And so I was watching. I'm like, wow, Skippy just abandoned her, and now she's getting savaged. Uh, <laughs> So what were the <laughs> ramp what responsibility? Were your, what were your thoughts on that? On that um, interaction you know, the, between the, the mayor and the, the comments were mm. definitely unfortunate. Um, but I understand where they come from too. You know, this is a very transitory place for a lot of people, and people do show up in town. Um, they're generally well educated. They're excited. They want to dig in. But, you know, more people did not leave rather than stay. Well, we should probably say, too, that the mayor was being critical of Julie's recommendations because she was in from L.A. and only lived here five months. That's right. And yeah. we should say for the record that Julie's family has been right. here for years. She's been coming right. here for years. She right. moved here with her family, and her son is in Aspen High School. So Right. And the mayor basically said, I resent people from L.A. coming in and tell us how to be That's Aspenites. Right. But, so, but I think it's important that when we... Like, if we're going to criticize something, we also understand where it comes from, that we can listen to opposing viewpoints. Um, and so, you, you know, there are members of the community that have been here a really long time. And people constantly come and ask for help and ask for this and ask for that. Then they leave, right? And so I can understand how over time that calcifies and you become frustrated. And you say, you know what? Prove your worth. I'm not going to help you now. Not because I don't care, but because I want to make sure that this advice or this help or this time is going to land. So I understand where he's coming from. Um, I disagree with the comments. You know, Aspen is, you know, for all intents and purposes, a pretty liberal town. And, you know, I think it's really easy to talk a big game about liberal values. It's easy to complain about, uh, you know, what's going on with immigration nationally. But we are the penultimate town of immigrants, whether it was the Wheelers or the Pepkis. Um, people came here with a shared set of values, but they brought the knowledge, the know-how, in many cases, the dollars from outside. And at each stage, our town has benefited from that. Is there an integrative process? Of course. Do we want to make sure people share our values? Of course. But that is probably Aspen's secret sauce. That's why we have the culture and the arts to go with this game. It's part of the Aspen idea. Um, so I, I disagree. But to the mayor's credit, and, and I'm a fan of the mayor. I think you know, he's really well-intentioned. He, he does his homework. Um, and you know, I just received his mailer last night. I, I completely agree on all three issues. What was in the um, mentorship program presentation that, Brent, that he I, objected to? If I, I just want to like, just want to say because because he did. The mayor then reached out immediately after and said, "You know what? I'm sorry. I overreacted. Mm -hmm. It wasn't you. Uh -huh. We had a great meeting with him, and then a following meeting. And um, so okay. I just, you know, he he, so the he rift, definitely the, the rift has been. There was no rift, but yeah, I mean, okay. he, he he very actively reached out, and so we really appreciated that. Right. And what was what did set him off? What was the she was saying you should be bigger somehow. Yeah, I, I, busier, think, I think that right? was misunderstood. Um, okay. I, I think really it was about taking values from the outside. I mean, look, Steve, Steve is an amazing skier, an amazing runner. Um, you know, we both share that. I don't share the amazing part, but skier and runner. <laughs> um, and, and really intently wants to focus on Aspen as a ski town. Good. The World Cup was amazing. His uphill economy is amazing. But we've got to remember that that uphill economy is bolstered by small businesses, creating that ecosystem for creativity and innovation in the things that we are known for. That's exactly what this program does and has done. Let's talk a bit about that, that aspect that somehow, if you're young, you need help to, to find your way in Aspen, mm -hmm. whether it's mentorship or whether it's an incubator space or um, there's some crusty guys my age who say, well, you know, I came and found my way and, and I didn't need a hand and, and this is a little touchy-feely and I'm not buying it, mm -hmm. you know, that no one needs 
you either find your way in Aspen or, or you don't. Yeah, I and think so you, get, you heard that before. You gotten that pushback? Of course I have, mm -hmm. for sure. But I think uh, I, I would invite people to reframe that and not think of it as somebody asking for something. You should actually start over here with the community. What does the community want? The community wants a better future. Now, if you're over here and you're already retired, you're making contributions in some ways, but you're not making them in the ways that you used to through the workforce or starting new endeavors, et cetera, creating new things. So the question you should be asking is, well, what can we do to make sure that the people over here who can now do that are best equipped, are optimized to do the best for Aspen? Right? And so transferring that knowledge is actually the way we build a better community. It has nothing to do with give me, give me, give me. Well, That's the, the entire point. I get the mentorship part, but does, yeah. should the government be involved in helping young people launch a business? Is that, is that so if government's if you're, role? If you are asking about my position on business going forward, um, I think we absolutely need to rebalance our business mix. I think we need diversity. I think a lot of the tension we feel stems from the loss of character in town. And I think those things need to be addressed. I don't think a big government program is the way to do that. I haven't seen many, if any, examples of governments appropriately picking winners and losers in the business sphere. However, as I mentioned, I think that what we often look at is our biggest constraint, the limited area that we can operate in, and the price of real estate is actually our biggest asset in that it's going to require innovation. The future of retail, not just in Aspen, anywhere. I mean, big box stores are going out of business right now. The future of retail isn't going to look like what it does today. It's going to focus on experience building in common spaces, on collaboration, on cooperation, on shared spaces. So Aspen actually has the opportunity to be at the forefront, to be a leader, not just in resort communities, but in all communities in the future of the things that we are best at. The government's job is to remove any unnecessary restrictions we have on that innovation. And because of the rent issue, I think that the government can act as a convener for a constructive conversation between not just business owners, but property owners, uh, the city, and other stakeholders. But I think it's the convener. Uh, I don't think that, for example, uh, uh, a big government-run program is going to be the answer. And maybe I should phrase the question a little more positively, uh, or at least a little more open-ended. If, if you are 30 or under in Aspen and you are trying to find your way here, there's, there's housing and childcare, which we can talk about in a minute. But in terms of, of a business or um, from an economic perspective, what is the biggest hurdle? Is it the, the commercial space is too from expensive? From purely a business perspective? Yeah. What yeah. is in the way? It's dollars and cents. It's rent. It's rent. Period. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and I'll also just say that. Whether like, it's office space or commercial space. Sure. Or, and I'll also whatever. say that like good viable small businesses happen from founders and operators who have grit and determination and will go through the hard things. I mean, we foster entrepreneurs. We don't take people into our programs who are going to take it lightly or not going to take it seriously, um, who aren't willing to take risks. Uh, no matter all the support that we may or may not be willing to provide at a community You mean level, in your entrepreneurial yeah, yeah, nonprofit? Yeah, but, but, but the same thing uh -huh. is transferable. At the end of the day, you know, the people that will make it are the ones who are really gritty, who are willing to push and sacrifice. And those are the people that, you know, we should be offering support to. And I'm just trying to, to burrow into your, your campaign platform for yeah. that. Um, is there something that you would do on council specifically to try and make it easier for young people to, to stay in Aspen and flourish in Aspen? Is there a specific policy I, I, tied to that? <laughs> You got a long list. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, I'm, I'm not running to be the candidate of young people. I'm running to be a candidate for Aspen, period. So I want everyone in Aspen to flourish. And yes, I've got very specific thoughts, whether it's on affordable housing, on business mix, on the environment. So let's dig in. Well, let's talk about housing first. Sure. What needs to change yeah. in your mind? Cool. More? So uh, I don't think the answer is more. I think the answer is smarter and better and more coordinated, right? So first and foremost, our housing system is run on paper. Paper. There are stacks in a room somewhere. We, we don't know who lives in it. We don't know how it's being used. So we need to really intently invest well, on Let me challenge you on that. Well, in theory, we know who lives in it. In and theory. There's a list. You're saying people who, in theory, live in it aren't living in it? I would say that there, there is definitely the potential for a lot of compliance issues, um, but also just 
general permutations that happen over living in a place for 40 years. So we've got to digitize our system. It, you know, to run something effectively, you actually have to understand what the product is, how it's being used. So that's got to be first and foremost. So that uh, needs to be more transparent. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Transparent mm -hmm. and accountable, mm -hmm. right? I mean, let's not forget that we have probably the best affordable housing system, certainly in terms of ubiquity of any small town in the world. Um, that's not free. Like, we pay for that as taxpayers. And those who are lucky enough to live in, Lord knows, I hope to win a lottery one day too, uh, like, that's our responsibility to take care of that unit, to give back to the community that is giving us so much. So I don't think accountability is too much to ask for, and we need to build in more in the future. So more enforcement of, yes, I'm in my unit, and yes, I'm qualified, and no, I'm not renting it out on... Yeah. On, uh, yeah, it should be used as intended, mm -hmm. right? As we've agreed upon as a community. Right. So yeah, okay. we've got to make sure we do that. Right. Then we've got to make sure that we're actually utilizing the stock that we currently have. Let's not build our way out of a momentary problem because we're not finding an optimization of density within the system. We've got to have products that work for everyone, whether you are someone who's served this community forever and are now retired, or someone who's trying to make it as a dishwasher. Um, we're not there yet, and we need incentive programs to help optimize what currently exists. Well, there's a little bit of that going on. We're telling retired um, owners of deed-restricted housing, if you want to rent it out for six months, you can do so without penalty as long as you come in through the front door and it's yeah, under certain yes, rules. Yes right. and no. They're, APSHA's currently discussing some better ways to do that. I've mm -hmm. kind of rebranded for them without them knowing senior BO. Mm -hmm. um, but if you've got three extra bedrooms, if you have a qualified person, then you should be able to use those to rent them out. Also, if you're in a place that doesn't work for you anymore, right, you're in a big empty space and you'd rather be somewhere that's warmer or more ADA compliant or better suited to your community, then we should make sure that we have products available and give you an incentive to move down Without to that unit. Without having to win another lottery That's, or that's right. And, and, mm -hmm. and do it with a, a financial incentive so that we're serving mm -hmm. both needs. I think that seems like a, a reasonable compromise for the community. Right. Okay. Um, I also would like to expand the areas where the housing credits program can land. The program is really taking off. It's far more efficient than government building. It's it's cheaper, we're getting good units, um, and we're getting them faster, which this is, is really This is the Peter great. Fornell track. Peter basically. Fornell track, <laughs> and now five people in that program. Mm -hmm. um, seen some really successful things in there. Mm -hmm. um, and then we also really need to look at two other things, which I think are critical. One is we've got to start coordinating valley-wide uh, in a lot of stuff, but particularly in housing. We often forget that these issues are interconnected. And we talk about transportation or business mix or housing as separate. They're not, right? If you took all the people that lived in Basalt and all of a sudden they lived in Aspen, well, then transportation goes away. If we don't want that and we decide to put everybody in Glenwood, well, now we've got a more uh, problematic transportation system, or at least more use. So we need to be thinking about these things symbiotically as we talk about them, whole systems thinking. And so that would require a valley-wide conversation, something that I would hope to. It's sort of got a, uh, a nucleus right now. I want to kind of build a snowball around it. I mean, there's virtually no deed-restricted housing That's outside right. of Aspen and Snowmass. That's right. Um, yeah. So, so I, I mm -hmm. want to really convene that conversation. Mm -hmm. And then the second is the actual product. Um, you know, we have guidelines in place. I watch them come before me regularly that are really the product that was desirous when those were written, oftentimes 20 years ago. You mean the requirement of what free, a free market development is supposed to? Um... Uh, no, I mean in affordable housing. Uh, mm -hmm. So if someone comes forth with a project, it has to have criterion X, Y, and Z to be the minimum viable product for APSHA. Mm -hmm. You know, when I talk to my peers, and this is not what everyone's going to want, but you know, we moved here for the mountains. We moved here for the community. Um, a lot of us came of age during the recession. Um, Design has changed a lot, modularity, flexibility, and expectations have changed. Uh, I meet people all the time who say, I would love a tiny house product, or I would like something that is flexible. Uh, and I think we need to smartly explore those things. Again, not for everyone, but for those who actually want them, because that will allow us to land employees here, which is greener, it's cleaner, it's better design, it serves the community, and it does it without a huge impact. All right, Ms. Housing, some good ideas there. Okay. Um, <laughs> So I wanted to ask about the, uh, I guess this gets sort of the, to the business climate. You were engaged with the group that uh, worked on this chain store uh, ordinance and 
um, it's, it's on your website that you played a role in that. That's right. Can you describe um, what that group was like and what your role was in yeah. that ordinance? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was relatively informal. Um, I was approached by, and I'm just going to be as candid as I can, right? Um, so sorry for a long answer, but no, it's I think it's important. Um, I was approached by the group who was interested in beginning that because of my day job. Uh, we do support small local entrepreneurs. Um, and at the time, um, I do what I always do. I did my homework. I talked to planning experts. I looked around at other communities. Um, and I kind of did a deep dive with the group who I, I didn't know that well yet. Um, certainly, they're well-respected in the community, have great success on their own. But I didn't this is being well. led by Jerry Murdoch. Jerry Murdoch, yeah. former mm -hmm. mayors, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately, we decided that... Um, That's right, Bill Sterling and, and John and, Bennett. And John Bennett, okay. yeah. Uh, and, you know, ultimately we decided that we had the same interest, the same goals of balancing our business mix, providing an opportunity for um, those businesses to return that really, like, add to the vitality and future of Aspen. Um, but I also had a, a secondary motive in this, or I don't know if you'd call it motive, but... Motivation. Maybe. Motivation, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, while I understand why we continually see referenda and ballot initiatives because our government is not responding to our needs, which is the primary reason that I want to run to change that. So I don't bemoan those people for exercising the right that they have in any way. But I think it is a really, really poor way to run a community. So like base uh, two being kind of an example of that. You mean any you know, of the them council irrelevant. making a decision and the citizens coming in and saying, sorry. Uh, direct democracy was very thoroughly vetted by our founders, and it was turned down in place of representative democracy for some uh, very real, substantive, effective reasons. And so um, I saw this, one, as an opportunity to support op entrepreneurs, but two, to take something that I thought was probably going to be an ugly yes or no, black or white, ballot issue fight, not based on facts, and help weave it back into the normal process to demonstrate that we as citizens, when we care about something, actually can bring it in, be heard, and make a difference. Well, because they, you, there was a movement afoot to just put something on the ballot regarding chain stores. It, 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 wasn't, uh, it wasn't presented to me as that's what we're going to do, but, it, but that's historically what happens. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that I had an opportunity to try and shepherd it into the direction that wasn't that. And you know what? At the end of the day, that's what happened. And I think that's an amazing precedent. I think it demonstrates to people that if you care about something, you can actually bring it to decision makers. You can have an open collaborative process. You can have two former mayors and, and a, a, a VC billionaire convene a, a discussion and bring in all of the community. Uh, I think that's amazing. And I, I laud all three of them and everyone else for that. So to me, that was really great. And that, that ended up basically them presenting a draft ordinance for the council to consider and yes. work on. So it, was, it was more of a legislative process than a that's right. than a ballot process. That's right. It happened right. through normal process. So I think that's really healthy. Mm -hmm. And then I'll say, during the process, I learned a lot. Um, from the beginning, I said, we should focus on our goals, not the, the method, but the, the end. Um, and I learned a lot. And what I really learned is that a lot of the people that we are often afraid of, that we, I wouldn't say demonize, but we characterize without first-hand knowledge, actually really care about this town and are willing to work and sacrifice for it. And that's everybody from staff to property owners to stakeholders to those in the nonprofit community. And what that taught me is that I think there are really great proscriptive, um, positive, forward-looking solutions as to how to do this as opposed to restrictive ones. Um, you know, the Chainstar issue is settled. We've got something in place. You know, I, it, look, I think we all kind of, it exempts all of town. Right? So is it going to have a big impact tomorrow? No, it's not. But what it has done is I think it's enlivened the community to the discussion, and it serves as a platform for how we go forward in a positive, inclusive way. And that's the conversation that I want to lead on City Council. Does that so, answer your question? Yeah. Okay. And so you know, this town tends to, um, to be slow growth uh, or no growth, although someone once told me, given the amount of construction we always seem to have, that if this is a slow growth town, I'd hate to see it if it, if it wasn't. Yeah. Uh, but one of the characteristics I think voters want, I think it waxes and wanes, but in their elected officials is the ability to say no to yeah. a developer because there's a great deal of pressure. Um, you see it happening with Gorsuch House yeah. now. Uh, you should vote for this because 
for all sorts of sort of fuzzy reasons um, as opposed to you should vote for it because you like the configuration of the square footage. Yeah. And you voted on PNZ, all of PNZ voted no. Mm -hmm. uh, so can you help me understand your vote on Gorsuch House and whether you think that's indicative of your ability to say no if yeah. you're on city council? Well, I, I mean, first and foremost, I would say, you know, I am running because I think we need strong leadership. We have to be willing to stand up to not just interests, but in many cases in this town, um, very well-backed interests. And yeah, I'll absolutely stand up for my values each day. And when I do it, I will explain to the community clearly how and why I'm doing it. And if they disagree, then that's a prerogative. And I will always listen. I'll always listen to all sides before and after an issue. Um, so yeah, I guess... Uh, but Why'd to answer, you vote your, no on Let me put yeah, it to, to answer your question candidly, um, mm -hmm. because I serve on planning and zoning commission, I'm not allowed to talk about that legally. Um, what I can tell you is well, you're not allowed to vote on it. Should you make it to council and it comes before council? Yeah, right? correct. Um, talk about it though. Sure. Right? So because it's in so, the past in sure. terms of PNZ, and you can't vote it on on the future. Sure. So, right? so again, uh, I'm not trying to trap I, you, but no, 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 I'm just those. That's just to be clear, yeah. right? Because I don't. I don't want to limit your candor either, but yeah. So you, what I can what what I can tell you is only what would be reflected in the minutes, basically. Okay, fair um, enough. So I will do my best right, to do enough. that, okay. and I would encourage anyone to go read them because, like I said, I do try and clearly lay out. Um, okay. But again, remember, PNZ is not a policy-making body; it is a body that enforces criteria that are already there. Let me try and help by answering you a more specific question. When you voted no yes. on the Gorsuch House proposal at PNZ yeah. on that iteration yes. that was before PNZ, why did you vote no at that time? Yeah. Um, so without going back <laughs> so into the specific into criteria, here, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just want to, I want to make sure that I'm respectful of sure, the process. Sure. Um, but for me, the, the biggest things that stood out that you would see there is, um, one, if we are going to enliven this space area, this needs to be a public and an activated space. It can't be a privatized space. So um, that is really, really critical to me. And at the time, there were some deficits there. Okay. Uh, I also had very serious concerns about the relationship with uh, contiguous property owners. Um, you're setting a 50-year precedent here. People need to get along. It's a small community. You have this other hotel that's approved and not being built mm -hmm. across the street. Yeah. So that, I mean, I, mm -hmm. I, I mean, I think two, maybe three times I sent them back and said, go talk to your neighbors, get this worked out, figure out a better solution. Um, and they so, couldn't and really still haven't, right? Yeah, I, I can't speak to. But they what, didn't to your satisfaction. Correct. Okay. Um, I, I also expressed, uh, and this is not something that is in the criterium, um, but something that I think should change. Um, I express concern about the proportion of the lodge that was for free market residential. Um, in my view, lodges should be lodges. We need hotbeds. Um, so that was a big concern of mine. Um, and so there's a concern that those, those private condominiums wouldn't be in a rental pool, but they'd end up as private condos and, and maybe dark. Yeah, well, there were condos and then there are free market residences mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I think, I think we, you know, we've only got so much space that we can build anything. We very firmly believe in a community of not building up, and I totally agree with that. So I think what is really critical going forward, um, and this is something that will weave its way through all of my decisions as a council person, we need to focus on how this affects people and community on the human scale. How does this design help facilitate the community and human interactions that we want to see? And what, was your, what was your take on the on the necessity of, of somehow connecting it with a, some sort of people mover or, or a little gondola or, or a lift down to Dean and Durant? Did you see that as a threshold issue, or did you figure, well, it really can't do anything about that? Um, again, and I, I hate to like, I feel like I'm dancing around this, and I no, wish I could okay. just like speak openly about it, but. Um, did that come up let in me, discussions put this, of PNZ? Let me put it this Is way. it not uh, true, Mr. Messer? Yeah, yeah. No, let me, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me put it this way. Um, I had the awesome pleasure of getting to meet um, Rich Lai. Rich, m most people probably don't know who he is. I don't know who he is. But he, as a graduate student in his, I think, like early 20s, in 1959, was the one as his thesis project who proposed the walking malls, walked them into council, and got them built. I got to have lunch with him recently, and he showed me the uh, initial sketches, and they included a lift that went down to what is now Wagner Park, 
Um, I think being big, bold, and bringing the mountain into town uh, at that time was a great idea, and I still do. Well, it's been um, interesting to me, and I've said this to other people, that the ski company seems to be taking a passive role in that discussion. Um, is that frustrating to you as part of that project? Um, I, yeah, I, I, I would like to see everybody in all circumstances take leadership and ownership. And so now we must ask you this sort of perennial Aspen question okay. uh, as what it relates to the entrance to Aspen, right? Yeah. Every candidate that's been through here at least uh, in the last 20 years has probably gotten asked this. There's a little movement on it afoot. Have mm -hmm. you seen the latest study? And mm -hmm. did you? I have yeah. not, and so I don't really have an impression. Which, I actually, uh, my, uh, my mom is in town, uh -huh. and uh, she went, I have some friends who uh, run Messenger Aspen, which is like an event company. Uh -huh. And uh, <laughs> I guess she had promised them over and over she would go to an event, and she hasn't. So uh -huh. uh, two nights ago, I get texts from my friends, photos of my mom in an art gallery, and they're all like, you got to come. Like, I'm reading white papers at home about transportation. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, I've, I've, I've read just about everything. Um, okay. And I've spent hours on the phone with heads of transportation. I've talked to RMI. I mean, I, I take my work seriously. Um, I always... And, always want to be the most prepared person in the room. Um, so yeah, I, I have looked at it. Um, to me, the answer is, is not a future that has more cars or more congestion. It's a future that has less cars and less congestion. Um, I don't want to do anything that's going to make it easier for more people to drive to Aspen, to have more traffic in town. Um, I want to go the other direction. I mean, Aspen is a place founded on feet and skis and athleticism and the outdoors, and I think our community should reflect that. So does that mean you're cool with light rail? What's that? Uh, so I want, to, I want to keep options open because I don't know enough to make a decision. These are really complex issues. Do I think some rail solution would theoretically be great? Sure. But I also believe in prudent about spending. And from what I've seen so far, there's, there's not a strong argument or any argument to be made for what has been presented at council, which is somewhere in the four to five and a half million dollars uh to me that's that's not a viable solution four and a half to five hundred million dollars yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 um but was that and that that figure seems to have galvanized a lot of attention and, and i was a little dismayed that it seemed to say oh well okay i guess we can't do light rail it's expensive and yeah. it just strikes me that there's a lot more to the conversation yet to yet to come to, to me the the critical part that's missing in the conversation is the actual user experience um you are asking people to make a very substantial lifestyle change by jumping from their car to something else, um, that behavioral change is actually a psychological change. Um, people are not just thinking in terms of dollars and cents, but we make unconscious associations with things. You know, cars equal freedom, for example. Um, buses equal a certain type of status that trains don't. And so I think if you want to actually encourage a behavior change, then you need to create a new environment. Uh, and so to me, what we're not talking about is what is the environment like in that alternative transit system, right? Now, I, if I'm in my car and I've got to get on a bus with my knees and my chest and, you know, a bunch of people making noise and whatnot and it doesn't come when I want and it costs money, well, like, I'm not going to do that. But if I could get into an environment in which, you know, I can sit down at a table and do homework with my son or daughter or get some work done on the way in from whether it's the intercept lot or someday Glenwood, uh, that's a much more enticing scenario. Get a cup of coffee, right? Uh, and so I, I do think that's been missing from the discussion, and I think it needs to be, because what we are discussing should be a 50 to 100 year solution, and it really should ultimately be a value-wide solution. So you think a Starbucks and a bathroom at the intercept lot would go a long way? Um, I think that, you know, <laughs> one, of the, one of the most interesting things that I, I, I read recently, I'm, uh, I read a lot, um, I can't remember the name of the author, but he is one of the most famous marketers in the world, the British guy. And he wrote this book where he evaluates particular government projects and then applies a marketer sensibility to them. So, and forgive me if I'm dollars and cents off here, but uh, from memory. Uh, but he was talking about this rail project from the London government, and they were linking the nearest sort of big city. They spent something like $4 billion, and at the end of the day, they cut six minutes off of the travel time. Maybe it was less. And this guy's like, are you kidding me? It's like, you could have given me $300 million 
I would have hired a bunch of models and given them nice clothes and everybody a free cocktail, and they would have begged me to spend 20 more minutes on the train. And I do think that like, we actually have to think about things in terms of the human interaction that way. If we want to change behaviors, we've got to create the environment to do it. And if you had that, if you had some kind of, whether it's rubber or steel wheeled is really not super relevant, uh, going from Glenwood to Aspen, well, that alleviates the need for cars, for one, not all cars, but a lot. So it's greener, it's cleaner, but it also changes the entire dynamic of the valley, right? Because we talk about inability to land certain products here because of price point. Well, if it's a 10-minute ride with a couple friends to the art gallery in Basalt or the shop in Glenwood, that entirely changes how we function. If we want to talk about small business generation, if you have an easy mechanism to get from one place to another, that changes your production line, right? So I, I do think we need to be thinking systematically about this. And if you looked into the particular um, where we get high-centered as a community on, on whether we go across the Merolt Thomas property or? Um, you know, I, I would say that I am not for the elimination of the S-curves for cars. Um, I know people will disagree with that, but uh, if you open that up, not only more will come, but the traffic jam ends up in Aspen as opposed to outside of Aspen. I don't, I don't think that's the solution. Um, if we have agreement on a direct valley-wide system, I think there's some argument um, from cost and otherwise to bring that into town straight. Whether that goes over or under is something I'd honestly have to evaluate at the time based on the evidence and the cost at hand. So leaving the, the auto on the highway where it is, yeah. but maybe bringing mass transit across mm -hmm. that, that open space would be something yeah, to be I, I would be open to, to it. Okay. Sure. Um, well, what else is on your list? What if we did elect you to city council? If the voters put you on there, there's no doubt you'd bring energy, and you say you'd yeah. be prepared, and I'm convinced you would be. The, the question is, what would you? What do you think you'll really? What'll be different? What'll be different in four years? Yeah. yeah well, I think on there. Uh, different in four years. Well, that's yeah. actually a great question. We'll give you four years to that's, make a difference. That's a great question. Um, let Let's Let's take the opportunity to bore the listeners because okay, uh, I really, really do think that modernizing the way our government functions is critically important. Well, you mentioned this in your, in yes. your, in your website about yeah. why do we have to go sit in uncomfortable chairs for 10 hours to speak for two minutes? These are very nice, by the way. <laughs> yeah, right? These should be in city. That should yeah. be the first thing you should do is make the chairs more comfortable in city council. But you're basically saying, Actually, wait, why do I even... If it's up to me, we would have stand-up desks. I've got a treadmill <laughs> desk in my house, so I'd be up there walking and chatting. Your real question is, why do I have to go to city council to interact with my government? Yeah, my, my question is actually, it's, 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 it's broader. It's much broader, okay. and it's deeper, and it's more important because we've all seen what's going on, not just nationally, but internationally. Democracy itself is being questioned. It's being undermined for a variety of reasons. I think we have an opportunity here to do something about that. I don't think we have to accept that premise. In fact, I refuse to. And I think we need to look at from all sides how we change that, because we're not feeling heard, we're not feeling represented, we're not feeling listened to. So there are several ways that you go about it. The first one's the most banal, but maybe the most important, right? And this is what I mentioned that I do on planning and zoning. We need to communicate more clearly, more authentically, more transparently, and more proactively. You don't have to come to me. My job, if I get elected, the reason you pay me that very high salary of $17,000 is I'm going to go to you, and I want to listen, and I want to know on each side. So that's a big part of that. Second is the technological side, right? It, it just doesn't make sense that in an age where I can have uh, a call with an a entrepreneur in Tokyo in 10 seconds or order socks tomorrow on Amazon, that I can't, wherever I am, where it's convenient, when inspiration hits, have the ability to have an impact on policy in my government, to tell people what I think about, and to have them see it in an open, transparent way where we can interact with one another. And not only does that provide uh, information from a population that is normally not listened to, but it also provides an environment where elected officials are buttressed in making hard decisions because they can at the table say, you know what, while I appreciate that viewpoint, here are all the data points over the last six months that we're looking at. That's going to be really critical. How does, that, how does that manifest itself? Is it on social media? Is it Twitter feed? Um, I, I think that it needs to be a unified source. Um, I'm not a coder. I'm not a developer, so I don't want to tell you what the product's going to be. Um, and I think part of that is uh, going to be a crowdsource as well, right? We're going to build this out slowly. There will be a beta and another beta because we really want it to reflect people's needs, not what we think they need. Um, but I think it's some sort of mobile app-based platform where you can have everything there. Um, so that's number two. Okay. The third one is um, procedural, 
right? We have a lot of rules in place that actually inhibit good decision making. So uh, way back when, this is just one example, but there are many. Way back when, uh, we had the old smoke-filled room, and bad decisions were made, and people were rightfully upset. But they misdiagnosed the problem. They looked at what was happening, and they said, ooh, these people shouldn't be together. Well, no, the actual problem was that they were in a back room filled with smoke, right? And so what we did is we precluded people from getting to know one another. There are prohibitions against council people gathering outside of council chambers. So there's no social connection there. And then we insisted on transparency, which is great. But we said, okay, people who don't know anything about each other, now you get in a room, you read a 300-page packet, and we're going to put cameras on you. And you're going to be real candid, right? No, of course you're not, right? You're going to be guarded. You're going to read from a script, and you're going to make a decision. Well, guess what? Most decisions that go to council are there because they're complicated, because they involve trade-offs, because you don't get yes or no answers, but everything is a tug and pull in a small town. And so we need to bring deliberation back into the process. So we've got to let these people come together, but we've got to do it in a transparent way where they're seen. So take them out the room, but let them stay together. And there are several ways that like, you would go about like other work sessions. Yeah. Well, work sessions, but also like out in the public. Like you should be able to, as a council, I should be able to have a barbecue and invite my council people over and make sure that the public knows about it and invite them over too and give us an opportunity to create rapport and trust, not just with ourselves and the community. I mean, you, you can do that. You have to do it in pairs and you have to be very careful about whether it's a but it's, noticed public meeting uh, or but not. But I'm saying that needs to change, that in the future we need to amend those type of rules to create better decision-making, more deliberative platforms. But you know they're in place so that decisions are not made out of the public that's eye. Right. That's right. And that's, I mean, and that's and exactly... Still, and there's still smoke-filled rooms in the number of executive sessions that are held. Yeah. Right? But, that, but so. that's exactly what I'm saying, is we've mm -hmm. misdiagnosed the problem. There are ways to maintain the transparency that we're looking for, but to iterate on them so that we get better products, better outcomes. Fair enough. Um, and then... Go ahead. I told you I'm going to bore everybody. No, I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the, the last one is also it, there, there are structural changes that need to be made. Um, representative democracy should be representative, and everybody should have a voice, right? People need to participate. Our elections happen, May elections happen, on more years than not, the single lowest occupancy in town, period. That doesn't make sense. That's the spring off-season election, yeah. That's right. There's, there's mm -hmm. nobody here, mm -hmm. right? So we get really low turnout. Right. Um, we should be focusing very intently. I would actively focus on increasing civic participation and increasing voter turnout. So we just have about two minutes left. Okay. So I need to give you... This isn't a watch. Yeah, so I need this to give you the, yeah. the opportunity to give us your best stump speech in, in two minutes and, yeah. and tell us why we should vote for you for, for city council. Yeah, um, I don't have a stump speech. I don't have anything prepared. But um, I do want your vote. I do want your vote. I want it because I care. I really care about this town. I work really hard. I've got a track record of that. Um, it's not easy to be 30 and to have a job and to pay rent and to put in the hundreds of hours that I do. But I was raised to care about service and about giving back. And I will show up every day with the best interest of the community at heart. I will listen to everyone and everyone. That's, I will be proactive, and I'll be smart about how we approach things. Um, we need new solutions to the same old problems. We need to be thinking 50 years ahead. And I know everyone says that, but it's different to say it and apply the tools of yesterday and than it is to say it and apply ideas and tools of the future. Um, that's unique. Uh, I'm not here to run against anyone. I think we have a lot of great candidates. Um, a lot of them share the same viewpoints, not because it's some sort of diabolical scheme, but just those are the people that have the time and ability to do it. Um, I think we need to start pushing back on that. So I would say vote for me because I will bring a different perspective, a work ethic, and care. And then pick your second favorite candidate. Um, and I would be happy to serve with any one of them. Uh, I, I enjoy them all personally, and I think they would say the same thing. And I'm so lucky to live here. So how's the how's the love out there? How you feeling? Feeling there's some momentum and enthusiasm for your um, candidacy? Seems like it. I yeah. feel it. I see it. Yeah, we we we've been getting a lot of great feedback. Mm -hmm. um, my sort of uh, quantitative clinical mind will not let me enjoy or bask in that. Uh, you know, you have massive confirmation bias. This is the worst data gathering piece <laughs> in the world, right? Like everyone's going to tell you how great you are, and the people who aren't aren't going to talk to you. So is there a ton of enthusiasm that I see? Yeah. Does it mean the world to me? Absolutely. But will I still wake up every day 
as if we're polling at 10% with the desire to get 100% of the vote, you're damn right. And so will our team, um, which, by the way, I haven't thanked them yet. Um, we've got just an amazing team behind us. Um, Chris Klug is our treasurer, a, a whole bunch of just really amazing, thoughtful people who, um, not all of them who I agree with, but I really respect their opinions. They're willing to tell me no. They're willing to tell me when I'm wrong, and that was really critical for me. Cool. Well, best of luck and congratulations for throwing your hat in the ring. Thanks, Brent. Yeah. Thanks for doing what you do, actually. You, it's you bet. amazing. Yeah. Grassroots Community Network's 2017 Aspen City Council candidate and election coverage is made possible by a grant from the Thrift Shop of Aspen, where your donations and purchases of clothing and other personal items supports dozens of nonprofits throughout the Roaring Fork Valley. Underwriting for Grassroots ProBlind series of in-depth candidate discussions is provided by A&B Bank Aspen, a bank like no other, with the strength, talent, commitment, and security to fulfill their business and personal customers' financial needs. A special thanks to Aspen Journalism for partnering with Grassroots on ProBlind, because well-informed citizens make better decisions. Discover more local, in-depth investigative journalism at aspenjournalism.org. It is simple to join these local institutions in supporting grassroots programming. Click the Donate button on your next visit to grassrootstv.org. You can watch this program and thousands of other grassroots programs online at grassrootstv.org, as well as on Cable Channel 12, Up Valley, Cable Channel 82, Down Valley, and Free TV Channel 12.1, over the Picking County Translator System. Or find a podcast of this discussion and many other informative and inspiring local presentations by clicking the iTunes or SoundCloud icons at the top of grassrootstv.org homepage.